you want to take your Bibles, we're going to read um, from John chapter 8 and starting with verses 31 through 36 again today. That's kind of the, the base passage that we're working from. Um, we're trying to understand from throughout Scripture what this passage means a little bit deeper. We've been talking about there's like three types of freedom we're kind of dealing with. If you're in your manual, you can, it's pages 67 through 68 where we talk about freedom if you want to write notes there. Um, there's also some blank space in the back because um, today we're going to be talking about the second of these three types of kind of freedom we experience in Christ. We, last week we talked about spiritual freedom. Today we're going to be talking about religious freedom and then next week we're going to look at what it means to be, have emotional freedom. Um, so here's the passage from John chapter 8. There we go. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say uh, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house, the son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's kind of that last page. What does it mean to be free indeed? That we're trying to understand the biblical concepts of the freedom we have in Christ, that we have been set free, the Son has set us free, and we are free indeed. Last week we talked about, I had to go old school today because the iPad died this morning and I didn't have the charging cable, so I'm back in the old school. So last week we talked about the difference between innate freedom and legal freedom, or what I would sometimes call consequential freedom, that, that we can do and choose to act the way we want to, but, but sometimes uh, there are consequences and we live in a case. Um, and then what it means to be spiritually free, how, because we had transgressed the law of God, because we were legally in debt to God because of our sin, how Jesus set us free spiritually from the penalty of sin, and for ultimately from the power of sin. And so as I started off this morning, disciples are the freest people there are um, because we have this ability. We've been set free from um, our debt to God. We've been set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And so it is uh, fully our responsibility when we choose to act against God. So today we want to build on this idea that disciples are religiously free. Because we've been set free spiritually, there's a consequence. This is what we call religiously free. From a biblical perspective, there's three ways we need to understand and handle religious freedom as it's laid out in the scriptures, and we're going to talk about that. But really, before we get there, I want to just discuss a couple of questions about religion itself. You know, in our context, in the church, we use words all the time, and sometimes we don't even clarify or think about what we mean when we talk about religion. Now, how many of you have ever heard the statement, you know, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, or it's about a relationship and not about a religion? How many of you have ever heard that statement? Okay, so you're familiar with that, and that's really kind of what we're talking about a little bit, but what do we mean by religion um, when, we, uh, when we're talking about that? So what, what actually is religion? So here's a, a definition from dictionary.com, right? A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. 
especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotion, devotional and ritual observances, and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs, right? So there's this system set up with all these things you're supposed to do because you believe that there is a creator, a God out there somewhere. That's kind of the base of religion. And there's lots of religions around the world. There's lots of codes and, and, and conducts and ways to behave and procedures and protocols throughout the world. But here's what I really believe religion is, is that religion really is humanity's attempt to account for their discord with God. That's really what religion is. It's, this, it's, it's humans' attempt to, to appease God. They, they, we have this sense, and something's not right, and we need to fix it. One uh, commentator said this, The earliest records and structures of religion all point to the fact that religion is not the opium of the people, as Marx mistakenly believed, it is rather his desperate and unsuccessful attempt to make amends with God, right? And so a, a, a question that, another religious question or a question on religion um, that sociologists and philosophers and all these try to discuss, they, they want to come up with the understanding of why is religion universal? Because one of the things that, that kind of blows people's mind is throughout time, Throughout the world, in all, in all places, all times, people have formed religions. And, the, and how do we account for that? That people who are vastly different from all corners of the globe. Hang on. From all corners of the globe, at all times, throughout history of humankind, people have come up with religions. How do we account for this universal thing, you would think there would be somebody who's like, there are, there, or there should be large groups of people who don't practice religion. But a universal human constant is the practice of religion throughout time. And so sociologists, they, they try to answer this question. And they come up with some pretty ingenious ideas. And I, I've actually just got to read one to you. It's called the big God idea. I uh, said so there's theories uh, these theories propose that the social life of every human being developed. It became necessary to find ways of holding an inevitably argumentative growing communities together. So, so people are generally don't like each other. And so humans had this instinct that they needed to do something so that they could get along with each other. Right? So they invented religion. And this is what it compared, and this idea is what compared it to. Our primate cousins, the apes, used grooming to do, the, to do this. So because picking nits off your face of the fellows and, com and combing fur eased stress in individuals. So they're comparing religion to apes picking ticks off one another. And, and, and that we just developed, we went from combing each other's hair to worshiping God together. And it accomplishes the same thing. Another uh, idea or theory is called the false agency, that what means that things happen, and so there must be somebody who makes it happen. We hear, we're sitting in a room, and we hear a noise in the back room. Well, something must have made that noise. Something caused that noise. And so we see things in the world, thunder and lightning and waves and hurricanes. Well, there must be some agent behind that doing that. It can't just be happening on its own. And so humans invented this idea that the, this 
magical being behind all the things that happen. Another idea is called the trance hypothesis. The idea that ancient religiosity rose when archaic ancestors, perhaps in the middle of Paleolithic period, realized that they could induce ecstatic experiences that started with dancing and drumming and, and chanting and feasting and fasting. And, and so it was a way to get high. <laughs> so we all just started religion just so we could have parties and get high together. Interestingly enough, the idea that's never considered, at least by academics in most cases, is that there actually is a God. You know, the, the base idea of all these other ideas is there is no God. And very seldom do they consider, well, what if there is a supernatural being? That's what we believe. And so the root of religion really is best explained by another universal phenomenon. There, there's, a, there's another phenomenon that happens at all places around the world and all people at all times. And I think it's really the root cause for all religion. And that's morality. That people throughout time have had some sense of right and wrong. That there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. This is the universal, the morality is the universal phenomenon that really is the root cause of all religions. Now, here's the truth. Every human has, in, has this sense of moral duty. Now, it may be weak and it may be strong. It may be defiled. It may be pure. It, it, may, uh, it may be different, but it's never absent. People may just... Their, their specifics on what is right and wrong may vary from group to group to group. But there's a whole lot of overlap where everybody agrees that these things are right and wrong. But basically all humans have this sense of morality that there is right and wrong. Illustration. I don't know of a people group that's ever existed that thinks getting punched in the face is a right thing to do. Right? Like we have this sense. You punch somebody in the face. That's not right. Especially if you're the one getting punched right? And so this morality, and what I believe that points us back to is what the Bible teaches us in Genesis chapter 3, the first sin, that humans ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? This, this is a carryover from the Garden of Eden. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 even builds on this idea. It says, indeed, when Gentiles, non-believers, pagans, who do, the, who, who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, that they are the law to themselves. Or even though they do not have the law, so they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience also is bearing witness that their thoughts either according, uh, accusing them or defending them. That, that we have been implanted by God with this sense of right and wrong, with this morality. And so here's kind of, so every human has this sense. It may be uh, accurate, it might be misguided, but it's never absent. And so here's kind of the flow, that humans have this sense of right and wrong. Well, if I have a sense of right and wrong, if somebody's told me what's right and wrong, well, there must be an agent. There must be someone who's decided what's right and wrong. And I have this other sense in me that when you do wrong, when wrong's done to me, there should be justice. And so if I've done something wrong against this moral agent who told me what's right and wrong, then there's probably justice for me to face. And so then comes religion. Because here's what religious, religion's goal is, 
to define the moral code. I want to know what is right and what is wrong so I know when I've done right and so I know when I've done wrong. And so religion often writes out those codes and then all they want to do is appease the moral agent. The one who said what is right and wrong, I want to make him happy, right? I don't want him to be mad at me because I have this sense that I've done wrong and I probably face justice and so I want to appease him or appease the agent. So religion's goal is to come up with this, and that's why religion exists. And that's why I say, basically, when we talk about religion, religion is man's attempts to amend their relationship with God, to make things right with God. And I think it's born out of our moral uh, ideas from morality. So we said this, so disciples, though... Because we're spiritually free, this is what we said last week, disciples are spiritually free. They don't have to curry favor, pacify, or make amends with God since they broke his moral code. Jesus set us free from our divine legal consequences of sin, right? So we don't have to go and make God happy. Jesus did that for us. He paid it all. He made amends. He brought us peace with God. And so we don't have to be worried about, did I do enough? Did I do this thing? And do I do that thing? And have I done what's going to make God? You know, we don't have to like, I got to get it all right or God's going to be mad at me. Jesus set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. We are free indeed. And if we don't have to worry about making amends to God, we don't have to worry about trying to get God to love us because he graciously does love us, right? Therefore, means we are free from religion, right? We don't have to like, oh, I get my gold stars and I did all the right things and I, and, you know, and I, I came to church enough. I, all those religion ideas that we try to do to make amends with God, we're free from that. Because Jesus set us free indeed. He set us free spiritually, and the consequences of that means that we are free from the practice of religion. That's why we say it's about a relationship. It's not about a religion. Now, here's a really sad thing, though. Today, religion, as I kind of tried to point out, is been universally man's attempts to try to make up with God. This is just kind of a quick side note. Presently, though, humanity is making some dramatic, dramatic shifts. No longer are we turning to religion to make amends for our immorality. Humanity now is trying to go to the base concept and deal with morality, deal with the moral code or the moral ethics within humanity. And so instead of being turning to religion to make up for our moral shortfalls their attempts are being made to destroy morality itself to say there is no such thing as right and wrong and that we all get to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong and you get to be your own moral agent there's not a moral hierarchy over you who says what is right and wrong and therefore you can't transgress any moral code because there is no moral code that is the attempts that are going on in society today. Not just to turn to religion to try to make up with God, just destroy morality itself. And I will tell you, an amoral culture is not what we want to live in. Where everybody can do whatever they want, when they want to do it, no matter what. And that punching you in the face is just as right as shaking your hand. 
But that's crazy, right? Because we all know getting punched in the face is wrong. But the attempts of society is to try to, do, to really move us to an amoral culture. And that's very, very dangerous. So I want to talk about what it means to be religiously free. There's three understandings and reactions to, to how the Bible addresses. When we say we're religiously free or we're free from religion, that has kind of three different understandings that we need to, to deal with. I do want to point out what we generally think, again, as free from re religious or religion regulations. This is our American concept idea, right, that we can practice whatever religion we want to. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible has some different aspects of what it means to be religiously free. And either my thing has died. We good? Okay, yeah. So this is kind of what we mean. This is what we as Americans mean, right? The, the state doesn't influence the practice of religion. We're, we're free to do what we want to um, and so forth. Here's what the Bible teaches, though, about being religiously free. And just let me point out one other thing that too many Christians or Christianity itself can actually be practiced as a religion. And a lot of people at times, people try to practice Christianity following Christ as a set of rules, as a set of do's and don'ts, a set of all the things you should do. And that's mistreating what God wants. He set us free from that. And so it is about the relationship. So number one, my battery must be dying. Can you advance the slide once? Okay, number one, we're free from religious dogma, all right? The word dogma is that idea of this is right, it's all these rules. Uh, Galatians 5.1 says this, the freedom for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The idea is that Jesus came, he calls it the yoke of slavery, that when he came and he's trying to help the Jewish people understand, they had this dogma. They had all these lists and all these rules that they tried to follow. And, 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 they, and they added rules on top of rules so that they could do what was right all the time. And Jesus comes and said, hey, you've been set free from this. Don't go back into slavery. It's really his interaction with a, people, a group of people in the, in the first century church called Judaizers. And, and what they came to do is say, you can get saved by believing in Jesus and become a practicing Jew. You need to get circumcised. You need to not eat bacon. You need to follow all the Jewish religions too. And so they, what they did is they took faith in Christ and added something to it, a whole bunch of legalism, right? A whole bunch of do's and don'ts. And Jesus is like, you're going back into the slavery I freed you from. You don't have to be a slave to all those things. Even in the passage we read this morning, Jesus said, I, didn't, I came to fulfill the law. Right, Not to abolish it, not do away with it. <coughs> and so he's encouraging them. And much of the New Testament, they struggle with these ideas that they're free from practicing religion. And getting over these official systems and principles and tenets and rules and all the behavior that they're expected to do. Acts 15, the very first church business meeting, right? They have a they have a they had the very first church business meeting in Acts 15. You know what they're talking about? 
What do we have to do? Do do we have to get circumcised or do you not have to get circumcised? And it's a big debate within the church. Do we have to do these things? And Peter stands up and says, Some of the men came down from Judea and was teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they're telling them, right? This is religious dogma. Verse 5, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep them, uh, to keep the law of Moses. So they have this big meeting, verse 10. Uh, now therefore they are putting God to the test, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, and, and neither their fathers nor uh, we have been able to bear, but we believe that you're saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter stands up and he argues and said, they don't need to do that. They're saved by grace, and that's what we believe. And you're, you're putting them under this very yoke that Jesus is saying, get rid of. And the church listens to Peter and goes, yeah, it's by grace, through faith that you're saved, and not by works. Matthew 11, Jesus talks about, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly a heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Again, he's arguing that, that this religious yoke is like this burden you have to carry. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be a light relationship with me. Ephesians 2.8 uh, points out the inadequacies of religious activity. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of work, so that no man may boast. Galatians 2 points it out in verse 16. Yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And then in Philippians chapter 3, 2 and 3, says, Look out for the dogs, look out for evildoers, who look out for uh, those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision and the worship by the Spirit of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh, not in the things that you do. Don't find your confidence, your, assert, your assurance of your salvation in like, I've been to church every day of my life. You know, I got... Perfect badges, perfect attendant badges, you know, as long as my arm. You know, I helped three old ladies cross the street last week. That is not where we find our assurance. I've read through the Bible 50 times. That's not where you find your assurance. Your assurance is not in anything we do in the flesh because we can't do anything. Jesus has set us free spiritually. So we're free from all that religious dogma, right? So how, do we, how should we react to that? We should be grateful Right? We should be assured my assurance is in what Christ did for me. He paid it all. He set me free spiritually. So I don't have to live under religious dogma. What a blessing. It's a light yoke. Now I do want to make one distinction for us to remember here. Being a Christian is difficult. Doing Christianity is not. Right? And what do I mean by that? Well, being a Christian, living as a Christ follower... It's difficult. Just think about the big three in our 3D disciples. You got to deny yourself. Well, that's hard. You got to forgive others. Well, that's hard. And you got to live in unity with people who are very different than you. Well, that's hard. 
So doing the things that Christ tells us to do, and these are the things like, unless you, you must deny yourself to be my disciple, you must forgive or you won't be forgiven, and unity is the hallmark of Christianity, those things are difficult to do, right? It's difficult being a Christian because that's what Christians are. They're self-deniers who readily forgive and live in unity with others. That can be difficult. But doing Christianity, what do you have to do? Nothing. You're free from religion. Now, I suspect you'll want to do some things to maintain your relationship, but there's no checklist for Christianity. There's nothing really to do to be a Christian except for have faith in Christ, right? And so being Christian is more difficult than doing Christianity. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hang, hung on a tree. That Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from having to do the law. He's freed us from the practice of religion. Which means, when we're free from religious dogma, there's freedom of religious diversity. This comes from a passage in 2 Timothy. And really what it tells us is, is when we come up, we need humility in the practice of our religion. Because there is no one set code other than the code of God. But, but our practice, there, there can be diversity in how we worship. There can be diversity in how we relate to God. 2 Timothy, uh, a couple of verses in 2 Timothy kind of point to this. Verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14 says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Present yourself to do, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they, they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to Everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may, perhaps, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We've been freed from religious activities and all the dogma that comes religion. And what that opens the door is to a diversity within the practice of, of worshiping God, a diversity within the following of God. And, and so there are diverse ways of following Jesus. There's some diversity out there. We don't all agree on the same thing. And so we have this freedom. Uh, as you know, I celebrate, I, I enjoy the, the fellowship of other pastors in our community who don't land in all the same places I land on all the questions we have about God. We land in all kinds of places when we start talking about God. And that diversity is one of the most beautiful things I've ever been a part of. And I'm free to fellowship with those guys because they believe in faith. They are saved by grace and faith, right? That's the one thing. Their faith in Jesus is the same. Our practice of that and how we live that out in our lives 
is a little bit different from person to person. And I enjoy that freedom, the freedom to, of that diversity more than I can tell you. And so there's some, there's some principles, and you probably have some people in your life, and if you don't, I would encourage you to find some people who, who are different in, in their understanding of who God is. That, that's good for us. But there's some principles on how to live out this kind of religious diversity. Number one, arguing does more harm than it does good. That's what this teaching us there in 2 Timothy, right? Don't get caught up in silly arguments. Don't get caught up in arguing about things that really don't matter. Certainly don't get caught up in things that don't have to do with a person's salvation, right? Because that's all that matters. Are they going to heaven or not? You know, whether you wear blue jeans on Sunday or not doesn't really matter, right? And we, we get in arguments about silly things, and arguing always causes more harm than it does good. Number two, you can be correct and still be wrong. You can be right. You can have the correct answer and still be wrong. It tells us to correct our adversaries with gentleness, right? And we pride ourselves on preaching and standing on the word, and, and, and we can teach and preach the word correctly, but without love, which would make you wrong, without gentleness, which would make you wrong. Uh, there have been times I've, I've cringed when I've heard people share the gospel. If you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. That's a true statement. But I've seen people deliver it like a hammer to beat people in the head over with instead of a cushion for their soul to land on, right? And so you can be correct about what you're saying and still be wrong in how you say it and your motivation for saying it and so forth. So it's not always just about being correct. Number three, do your best. It says work hard. Do, be, a, be a worker who tries to handle. Do your best to work out and understand the scriptures. But remember, you're fallible. The word of God isn't. Your interpretation may be. Your application may be. My understanding of the inerrant word of God may be off. So I'm going to do my best and hold with humility where I stand. That I could be wrong. But here's where I stand and why I stand there. Number four, it is God who convicts and convinces. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and, and, and convince people about the truth. And I'm not him. And neither are we. Right? And so we've got to ultimately remember we're never, ever ever going to argue someone into heaven and if it's leading to an argument maybe you just need to walk away and pray that the spirit will bring about his do his work in their lives and not you be that agent and finally unity is preferable but not at all cost there will be certain things where we have to stand where we have to stand and sometimes we just need to stand there quietly but stand firm. And so we want to do all we can to be unified with as many as people we can, but not at all cost. So once we, so we have religious, freedom from religious dogma, which leads us to the freedom of religious diversity, and we can socialize and fellowship and be part of other people. And the third understanding of biblical religious freedom is 
the freedom of religious conscience. Some people call this religious liberty. Galatians 5.13 says this. And in this, in our understanding, our reaction should be love. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Romans chapter 14, uh, uh, Paul talks about this again, like, like, here's what he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. One person believes that, eat, that, that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not one of you eat, uh, not, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. That there's things in life that is your conscience. Right? And, and, and there are things that you may approve of that somebody else doesn't approve of. And there may be something that they don't approve of that you, they, they approve of that you don't approve of. And so we've kind of got to give each other some love and some space. The Bible actually instructs us that the principles for, for dealing with this is to, is to look out for the other ones first. That, that when it comes to our conscience, we need to look out for the conscience of the other before we exercise our rights to freedom. Now, what we do, we should do thinking about loving others first. Back to that Galatians. Serve one another in love. Don't let your freedom, don't let your liberty, don't let what you can do and what God has said it's okay for you to do, don't let that be a stumbling block for your brother. That's what it says in Romans 13. Therefore, let not the one who passes judgment any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. For if a brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And so, we as disciples are free indeed. We're free spiritually from the consequences of breaking God's law. Jesus paid that for us. And so we don't have to try to curry favor with God because he already loves us. We already have his favor. It's because of grace, that favor we've been saved. So that sets us free from the practice of religion trying to satisfy God. And so we can live assured, right? My salvation is not dependent upon me. You need to tell yourself that every morning. My salvation is is not dependent upon what I do today. I have been saved graciously by God. I'm going to live in that assurance. I'm going to live with the gratitude of that assurance. I'm going to live with joy of that assurance because I don't have to try to make things right with God because things have been made right with God for me by what Christ did. So that sets you free. You can live assured. You can fellowship now with those who are different than you. You can enjoy the fellowship, the broader fellowship of the body of Christ. That, that we don't have to agree on every dogma, on every idea when it comes to following Christ. That there can be some diversity and I can have some friends who land in different places. But I know they love Jesus like I love Jesus. And enjoy the broader fellowship 
right? The, we're, we're working hard. Again, we're already planning, if you don't know, for our uh, Good Friday service where the churches in this area will get together and celebrate communion together. Do we all do communion the same way? No. Do we all sing the same songs? No. Do we all do everything right in, in, in the same way in those churches? No. But one thing we agree on, because of the shed blood and the broken body of Christ on the cross on Good Friday, when he died for us, he died for our sins. And he rose again so that we would have the hope of resurrection ourselves. And we can break the literal bread together. One church, one spirit. If you've never been to it, I encourage you, make plans to be there this year. It is a beautiful thing to see the church the big C, church of God, starting to come together. And, it, and it's not always about the little C churches, our individual churches. It's about the kingdom of God. And we can live in fellowship in that kingdom. That's a blessing. And we can love those with whom we disagree. Now, there's people who literally don't think Jesus is the way. There are people who think the reason we worship at all because it's some kind of innate thing that came down from our ape ancestors instead of picking ticks off each other and combing each other's hair but you can love those people right you can love those and just think about how different that is for the christian who can live in this kind of freedom because that's not how the world lives if you disagree with me you can't be my friend if we have a difference of opinion, i got to prove you wrong or, dis, or d not be satisfied with you. But Christians get to live in this world as diverse and different as it is, free, assured of their salvation, able to fellowship with other Christians, and able to love those with whom they disagree. And sometimes it's just silently loving them and loving them and loving them. So let us go live in our freedom.